0: Hey, it's Guy here. So most of us see everything in our lives through the lens of time. Our daily schedules, our memories, our plans for the future. But if we stop to ask what time actually is, it becomes kind of complicated. So today on the show, we're exploring our perception of time and how our sense of time changes depending on who and where we are. This episode is called Shifting Time. And it originally aired in June of 2015. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, Ted. 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 Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered Stanford. at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've
1: had to believe in impossible things. The
0: true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So sometime in 2011, Cesar Kuriyama felt stuck in time.
2: I was about to turn 30. And I was working in advertising, and I was working 100-hour uh, work weeks all the time. You know, I literally had, n- like, no, no life. I, 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 my life was work. Caesar was living in New York. He still does. But back then, he was living a life he had not planned. Eight years earlier, he'd finished art school, where he studied... Computer animation, primarily. But I dabbled in sculpture and painting and, and film, and I just wanted to get a little taste of everything. But then... Then I started working in advertising and... After about 10 years... You know, I found it less and less creatively fulfilling. Um, And so uh, I I kind of hit a breaking point where I I needed to do something about it. It was a classic quarter-life crisis. And like
0: any life crisis, it got Caesar thinking. About better times. and
2: so I was thinking back on when I was 20, but there, and he ran into another problem. It's kind of like I, I know generally what I, I know where I was in college, I was a sophomore, who my friends were, what my classes were. but on a day-to-day basis, I have absolutely no idea. And this is where the story really starts, because Caesar thought with all of our modern
0: technology, there had to be a better way to remember the past, to
2: chronicle our own journey through time. And so I thought, one second. One second of video. And I, I realized, wow, I have this high definition camera in my pocket at all times, now thanks to, to my iPhone. And coming from an animation background, I know that there's a lot you can capture with just a second. So Caesar began recording short videos every day,
0: and then he'd edit them together so that each day was represented by a single second of footage. Do you have a, a video with you that you can just like uh, look at and describe to us like just for like <laughs> sure. 15 or 20 seconds?
2: And while I have my phone on, I might record the little NPR logo on the on the mic cuz you know, hey. You Since know. he first got this idea,
0: Caesar Koryama has been recording a second of his life virtually every
2: day for over 4 years. Wow. 4 years and uh, a and, and 4 months. That's 4 years of life in a 25-minute video. Alright, so I'm jumping over to June 1st of 2011. Okay. This is right before I took off on, on a 95-day road trip around the US and Canada. Wow. Um, okay, so I'm going to hit play. June 1st is the odometer on the car. Um, I am in Philadelphia, crashing with some friends. I am biking through Pennsylvania. I am camping uh, near Pittsburgh. I am going to... I'm, play, I'm learning how to play Settlers of Catan, which is one of my turned out to be one of my favorite games ever. I played all the time. I'm in Chicago. Um, For Caesar, watching his life flash by in a matter of
0: seconds, it's like this feeling. A feeling that you're
2: looking at the answer to a question we all ask ourselves. Where does the time go? You know, a couple of weeks in, I realized, wow, like, because it's all playing out chronologically, I can fill in the gaps pretty easily. You know, like, the second that comes tomorrow and the second that came before it. It's like you feel time, you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just a very difficult thing to try to perceive. Near uh, St. It Louis, it's the Fourth of July. Uh, I am heading down to Austin. I've always wanted to go to Austin. I'm in Colorado. I'm camping on sand dunes, and I'm, I'm jumping. I, I worked up the courage to jump into a, a, a lake. There, I'm in, uh, I'm in Yosemite.
0: Since Caesar first started doing this about four years ago, he built this idea into an app. It allows anyone to stitch the recorded seconds into a seamless video and to experience something most of us never see.
2: You know, think about the person you were on your first day of high school and the person you were on your last day of high school. Think about the person you were on your first day of college and the person you were in, in your last day of college. You know, there's a massive growth and evolution that happens in that span of time, but it happens gradually, so you you don't really feel it or sense it. And so now when I can revisit, you know, the past four years in 24 minutes, you know, my, my understanding of time becomes far more finite than I think it's ever been.
0: And that raises a question. How can something so predictable, time, feel so different depending on where you are, or who you are.
3: An hour takes forever when you're five. Forever.
0: Remember, like, the summertime when you were a little kid, and it would just go on and on right, and on. Right, right. And is what we think of as time even real? No matter how small
1: we cut the moment, a second, a half a second, a quarter of a second, the present is a psychological illusion.
0: And if it is real...
4: When did time begin? Is time an absolutely crucial part of our best description of the universe? Or is time something that emerges as an approximation if we look at the universe in a right way?
0: This episode, those questions and ideas about shifting time. Caesar Koryama, by the way, quit advertising to work full-time on his One Second a Day app. Yeah, it's... uh takes up all my time. (laughs) Which I've used myself. So there's my two-year-old potty (laughs) training, birthday party swinging, find out more about it, another birthday, and see Caesar's TED Talk (laughs) at TED.com. So let's move up from a second to an hour and a theory about why one hour in particular seems to be so different from all the others. 4 a.m.
5: Poets, when they talk about 4 in the morning, often do mention it as a time of extraordinary stillness, placidness, or of magic. They're really talking about this time as something special.
0: This is Reeves, just Reeves. He's actually a poet himself. I say I'm a poet. That's what I put on my text return. And for years, Reeves has been obsessed with 4 a.m., a time he insists that you have to kind of experience for
1: yourself.
5: Good morning. There Reeves? <laughs> Good morning, guys. Welcome to 0400.
0: Wow, this is what it feels like, huh? Just waking up.
5: Did you set an alarm? Yeah, I set an alarm. Okay, are you inside? Yeah, inside. Well, I don't think you did in the picture. All right, well, I can
4: go outside. Let me go outside. I'm going to go outside.
5: Me, I'm standing in the middle of the street. Oh. I don't know. Can you hear the birds? Can you smell the jasmine? Can you see another person? No.
0: There's nobody else outside.
4: It's four in the
0: morning, the
4: end
5: of December.
0: Here's how Reeves described
5: the 4 a.m. hour on the TED stage. Did you ever notice that four in the morning has become some sort of meme or shorthand? It means something like, you are awake at the worst possible hour. (laughs) A time for inconveniences, mishaps, yearnings. A time for plotting to whack the chief of police, like in this classic scene from The Godfather. Coppola's script describes these guys exhausted in shirt sleeves. It is four in the morning. A time for even grimmer stuff than that, like autopsies and embalmings in Isabella Allende's The House of the Spirits. After the breathtaking green-haired Rosa is murdered, the doctors preserve her with unguents and mortician's paste. They worked until four o'clock in the morning. A time for even grimmer stuff than that, like in last April's New Yorker magazine, this short fiction piece by Martin Amos starts out. On September 11, 2001, he opened his eyes at 4 a.m. in Portland, Maine, and Muhammad Atta's last day began for a time that I find to be the most placid and uneventful hour of the day. Four in the morning sure gets an awful lot of bad press (laughs) across a lot of different media from a lot of big names, and it made me suspicious. I figured surely some of the most creative artistic minds in the world really aren't all defaulting back to this one easy Trope like they invented it, right? Could it be there is something more going on here?
0: So why
5: is it uh, is it like four but not three or or like five. Well, I think three is a junior varsity four in the morning. <laughs> a good example is F. Scott Fitzgerald talks about three-in-the-morning courage. No man has courage at three in the morning. But there aren't really any dire three-in-the-mornings in The Great Gatsby. There's a really dire four-in-the-morning Jay Gatsby waits for Daisy the last night of his life, and she comes to the window and disappears. Five in the morning, you can tap on someone's window at four in the morning, and it's still romantic. You tap on someone's window at five in the morning, they're like, nah, dude, I, I gotta get up. Or, or they're like, let's go jogging. Right, right. The day's already yeah. started.
2: It's like that weird sort of transitional time where like, the mothers are sleeping, the joggers are sleeping, morning people are
5: sleeping and night owls are pretty much asleep like the only one awake is you you're the only one there's a paper guy and a tram just went by and there was a driver and one passenger so one driver one dude so there's those guys and um i don't know that's you know there's nobody around there's a few people but the street lights are still on as far as the perception of time goes there's a, uh, there's a song, When You're All Alone, It's Always 4 a.m. Hmm.
3: The world is cold, the night is still.
5: Yeah, I think
1: four in the morning is the modern dark and stormy night.
3: When you're all alone, it's always
0: 4 a.m. Why does time feel so differently at this very special moment in the day? Do we know?
5: Well, first of all, I think it feels special because for most people, it's a foreign land. So it feels special the way that Paris feels special. Hmm. You only go every once in a while. Or the flip side is that's why it feels threatening or dire or or weird or uncanny. But if you're in the mood... There's no better time to read a book, and there's no better time to work on that novel. And it's a little bit lonely sometimes, but uh, I know four in the morning, so it feels like something very familiar to me.
0: Well, I'm awake now, so I don't think I'm going back to sleep. Um. And I think I'm going to start the day. Well, thanks for the visit to the, to the country yeah. of O400. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, man. Good night. Good night. Good morning. That's Reeves. He's a poet and the curator of the Museum of Four in the Morning, which is actually a website. You can find it at fourinthemorning.com, and you can see several more talks by Reeves at TED.com. Our show today, Shifting Time. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Etrade. Are you ready to make moves with your money? Invest with Etrade and you'll see how simple investing can be. No matter your level of experience, Etrade's easy-to-use platform keeps you in the know about your money every step of the way. But it's not just their platform that sets them apart. Etrade has the people to offer guidance and support to make your money work hard for you. For more information, visit eTrade slash NPR, ETrade Securities, LLC, member of FINRA SIPC. Thanks also to American Express. You're filled with new and exciting ideas for your business, and American Express wants to help you make those ideas happen with flexible financing solutions. They have over 4,000 specialists who can work with you to find the right option for your business. Chat with them today to see if you're eligible so you can go from intention to invention. The powerful backing of American Express. Don't do business without it. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com business.
3: On the new episode of Invisibilia, our relationship to uncertainty. What do you do when you have no idea what to do?
2: Maybe everything that we've thought was right is wrong. Maybe we're living life upside down. I I don't know.
3: That's up next on Invisibilia.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, Shifting Time... Ideas about how we perceive and think about time. And do you remember when you were a kid how a day at school felt like forever? And then at a certain point in your life, as you get older, the days and the months just seem to move faster.
1: Yes, they do. This is Dan Gilbert, Harvard psychologist. And that's because older and younger people don't actually experience time all that differently. They just remember it very differently. When old people say time goes by so fast, they're talking about the time that's already gone by. There's also just a whole hell of a lot more recording in the brain of an 86-year-old person. When they're thinking about life, they're thinking across much greater expanses of time. And so to traverse that many years in five seconds versus traversing five or six years in five seconds, you get the sense that you're going a lot faster. Which makes sense when you think about it, but it still
0: doesn't explain why we tend to think of ourselves as fixed in time,
1: depending on where we are in life. When I turned 21, I thought, I'm finally grown up. And then when I turned 30, I thought, no, now I'm grown up. Boy, was I crazy about that when I was 21. Yeah, I repeated that when I was 40 and then when I was 50. And the amazing thing is that each time it happens, I'm pretty sure I'm right this time, despite the fact that I was wrong every other time. So a 30-year-old would
0: say, yeah, I'm different from the person I was when I was 20, but I'm now the person I am. And a 40-year-old would say, yeah, I'm different from who I was when I was 30, but, but I finally figured out who I am. And go on
1: and so on and so forth. Not only that, but the same person says that thing over and over again. Look, we all know we will change. We know that we're going to gain a few pounds and get a few wrinkles. But we think that fundamentally the people we've become, our personalities, our values, our preferences, likes and dislikes, will remain relatively stable in the future. And in that, we are wrong.
0: Dan and other psychologists have tested this by taking
1: a group of people of a certain age, and you ask them how much they're going to change in the next 10 years. Then you find a group of people who are 10 years older, and you ask them how much they changed in the last 10 years. I can ask you questions like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how extroverted are you now? How extroverted do you think you'll be in 10 years? How extroverted were you 10 years ago? Now, if everyone is perfectly rational and everyone has perfect memory, those two numbers should match. What we found is, no matter what the dimension of change and no matter how old the people were, those numbers never matched.
0: Dan explained why that is
1: on the TED stage. All of us are walking around with an illusion. An illusion that history, our personal history, has just come to an end. We call this the end of history illusion. An illusion That we have just recently become the people that we were always meant to be and will be for the rest of our lives at every age people underestimate how much their personalities will change in the next decade and it isn't just ephemeral things like values and personality you can ask people about their likes and dislikes their basic preferences for example Name your best friend, your favorite kind of vacation, what's your favorite hobby, Uh, what's your favorite kind of music. People can name these things. We ask half of them to tell us, do you think that that will change over the next 10 years? And half of them to tell us, do you did that change over the last 10 years? People predict that the friend they have now is the friend they'll have in 10 years. The vacation they most enjoy now is the one they'll enjoy in 10 years. And yet, people who are 10 years older all say, eh, you know, that's really, changed. Does it matter which decade of life we're talking about? Uh, the amount of change between 20 and 30 is greater than the amount of change between 30 and 40. The pace of change does indeed slow as we age. All of us have the sense that we're coming into our own, that we're finally mm. becoming the person we were meant to be. Yeah. That's not entirely wrong. You will change less in the future than you did in the past, but You will change more in the future than you expect to. What explains that? I mean, why are we so bad at imagining how we will change over time? We don't really know, Hmm. but we have some good guesses. The best guess to date is that when you try to imagine yourself in the future, you can imagine changing in one direction as easily as you can imagine changing in the other. As a result of it being easy for you to imagine becoming more extroverted and to imagine becoming less extroverted, you mistakenly conclude that you won't change at all. Hmm. But this is a mistake. I mean, imagine I framed the problem differently. You're walking down a road and you come to a dead end. Will you turn left or right? Well, I can imagine turning left, I can imagine turning right, that's fine. Would you conclude that as a result of not knowing which way you're going to turn, you won't turn at all? Of course not. In that problem, you see that just because you don't know the direction of your turn doesn't mean turning is unlikely. And yet somehow as we move through time, because we can't predict exactly who we will be, we mistakenly take that to mean we will remain the person we are. What do you think is helpful about
0: having this illusion that we have just become the person that we we're always meant to be? Is there
1: like a reason why we feel that way? Well, we certainly don't know that there is something helpful about it. Uh, every psychological tendency doesn't have to have a benefit. Yeah, But if you asked me to guess what benefit might accrue to people who believe that the amount of change in front of them is quite limited, most people are fundamentally satisfied with who they are. Hmm. They feel that they finally arrived at being a pretty good person, a pretty capable person, a pretty responsible person. And as a result, the idea that any of these things might change feels a little threatening, a little undermining. So I think stasis is a comfortable illusion that all of us live with. uh, And it might be one of the reasons why we don't believe there's as much change in the future as we're going to find out there really was. So based on all the evidence that you've seen, can you sort
0: of come up with a rough age where most people are actually coming into the person they were always meant to be? 57 ah i got it which happens to be
1: which happens to be your age right now if you ask me next year i might have a different opinion ah the bottom line is time is a powerful force it transforms our preferences it reshapes our values it alters our personalities We seem to appreciate this fact, but only in retrospect. Only when we look backwards do we realize how much change happens in a decade. It's as if, for most of us, the present is a magic time. It's a watershed on the timeline. It's the moment at which we finally become ourselves. Human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. The person you are right now is as transient, as fleeting, and as temporary as all the people you've ever been. The one constant in our life is change.
0: I mean, it it really is amazing that something like time, which seems so fixed, can be experienced in so many different ways,
1: depending on where you are in life. You know, the human brain just doesn't know how to think about time. If you ask most people, what's real? The present, the past, or the future? They say the present. Yeah. Actually, they're wrong. The past and the future are both real. The present is a psychological illusion. Hmm. The present is just the wall between yesterday and today. You know, if you go to the beach, you see water and you see sand, and it looks like there's a line between them, Mm. but that line is not a third thing. There's only water and there's only sand. Similarly, all moments in time are either in the past or in the future. Yeah, Which is to say, the present doesn't exist. Psychologist Dan
0: Gilbert teaches at Harvard. He's got lots more TED Talks that are all amazing. You can see them at TED.com. So if the passage of time changes our personalities and our values, what about its effect on our emotional state? can you say your name, please?
3: Mm-hmm. My name is Laura Karstensen. I am a professor of psychology at Stanford University, and I'm also the founding director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. So
0: a uh, personal question. Mm-hmm. Do you mind telling me your age or roughly your age? Oh, I'm 61, roughly. Oh, great. Are you, <laughs> so so you, must be, you must be happier now than you've ever been in your life. Of course. Yeah. But why? What's going on? Is it just today or is it just being 61? <laughs> no, it's, it's getting older. Getting older and happier. Which sounds counterintuitive because when you get older, bad things start to happen to you. You get sick, your friends get sick, you can't move around as much. But Laura's crazy discovery was that as time moves forward, people actually become happier.
3: That's right. Older people are happy. They're happier than middle-aged people and younger people, certainly. (laughs) Study after study is coming to the same conclusion.
0: Here's Laura Karstensen on the TED stage.
3: Years ago, my colleagues and I embarked on a study where we followed the same group of people over a 10-year period. Originally, the sample was aged 18 to 94. And we studied whether and how their emotional experiences changed as they grew older. Our participants would carry electronic pagers for a week at a time and we'd page them throughout the day and evenings at random times and every time we page them, we'd ask them to answer several questions on a one to seven scale. How happy are you right now? How sad are you right now? How frustrated are you right now? How happy are you right now? How frustrated are you right now? Right now. And using this intense study of individuals We find that it's not one particular generation that's doing better than the others, but the same individuals over time come to report relatively greater positive experience. And so people, as they grow older, seem to experience fewer negative emotions and just as many positive emotions as when they were younger. So on balance, life experience feels better. Yeah. And it, when it, when scientists first discovered this finding about emotion improving with age, they referred to it as the paradox of aging. I and mean, people were shocked, but why is that? Like
0: our perception of time is different, the older we get. And then we're also happier on balance.
3: Mm-hmm. Did that like why do people say that? Well, I remember talking to two sisters who lived together in an apartment complex, and they were talking about having lost many friends over the years. And I was saying, but there are a lot of people around here who are your age, who are like you. You could meet all sorts of people. And one of them looked at me and said, you know, we just don't have time for those relationships. Huh. And I remembered looking at her. My first thought was, you look to me like you got a lot of time on your hands. You know, I mean, <laughs> you are what are you doing all day? Right. And I realized... That she wasn't talking about time in the day. She was talking about time left in life. Huh. And I realized that at some point in life, we're never going to make a new old friend. Because there isn't time.
0: So that at that moment, you were like, wait a minute, this light goes off in your head. You're thinking, mm-hmm. I get it.
3: Yeah. I went home and I remember sitting in my living room staring out at the city of San Francisco and thinking, it's all about time. Not just clock time and calendar time, but lifetime. And if there's a paradox of aging, it's that recognizing that we won't live forever changes our perspective on life in positive ways. When time horizons are long and nebulous, as they typically are in youth, people are constantly preparing, trying to soak up all the information they possibly can, taking risks, exploring. We might spend time with people we don't even like because it's somehow interesting. You know, we might learn something (laughs) unexpected. (laughs) We go on blind dates. (laughs) You know, after all, if it doesn't work out, there's always tomorrow. As we age, our time horizons grow shorter and our goals change. When we recognize that we don't have all the time in the world, we see our priorities most clearly. We take less notice of trivial matters. We savor life. We're more appreciative, more open to reconciliation. We invest in more emotionally important parts of life, and life gets better. And that's why we think people get happier as they grow older. Um, Because when death isn't literally knocking at your door today, but is coming closer, you know, is kind of moving into the attic and kind of hanging out in the backyard, (laughs) um, it focuses us on life and the people and the aspects of life that matter most.
0: I mean, it seems like we have that capacity to also, I guess, in a way, slow down our perception of time when we want to.
3: Well, yes. You know, whenever I give public lectures and talk about these differences in time horizons and how they relate to goals and younger people are preparing for this long-term future and older people are savoring the moment, almost every time some young person will come up to me afterwards and say, how do I get old faster? You know, Hmm. I like that state. How can I be in that state and live in that state? Yeah.
0: I mean, when you're younger, you're so future-oriented. You're thinking about what's going to happen and what my life is going to be like. And then as you get older, you don't feel that way as much.
3: But, you know, in some ways I think of this as the silver lining of growing older is that we're relieved of the burden of the future the older we get. And a whole lot of the concerns we have in life are about the future. And as we move through life, we know where we are and where we're headed. In day-to-day life, this translates into greater enjoyment. But as social scientists, we've continued to ask about possible alternatives. We've said, well, maybe older people report more positive emotions because they're cognitively impaired. LAUGHTER <laughs> We've said, could it be that positive emotions are simply easier to process than negative emotions? But that's not the case. The most mentally sharp older adults are the ones who show this positivity effect the most. But it's really too simplistic to say that older people are happy. (laughs) Um, In our study, they are more positive. They're also more likely than younger people to experience mixed emotions, uh, sadness at the same time you experience happiness, you know, that tear in the eye when you're smiling at a friend. You know, we we think this is why poignancy increases uh, with age, too, and why that tear in the eye tends to happen when we're thinking about chapters ending. Mm. So as we move through life and we uh, celebrate graduation from high school, then college, marriages, the birth of children, these are positive events, but they signal the end of one chapter and the beginning of a new one. And those times in life are the very same events that bring a tear to our eye at the same time we're smiling.
0: That's a thing, you know, like just before I came in here, I was listening to an old episode of our show. It was about space two stars and we put my I put my son in it because he loved to gaze at stars he still does yeah where's Polaris and I listened to his little voice maybe is Polaris's neighbor and uh, he was four okay. at the time and he's six now
3: oh and because
0: I was like, you know there's yeah. my little my like four-year-old is a big boy six yeah it was like that feeling that like
3: right. sadness
0: but also love it was weird.
3: But, but can you imagine any emotional experience that's richer than that? No. Where you, you're seeing the past, you're in the present, you're thinking about the future. It's all there. And it's incredibly gratifying.
0: Laura Karstensen is a psychology professor at Stanford and the director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. You can check out her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, shifting time: ideas about our perception of time. Coming up, the beginning of time. When was that? I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to a few of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, for example, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. It's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. The new Surface Pro 6 from Microsoft. Thanks all also to Gainbridge, the bold way to steady growth. People often think annuities are too conservative, too complex, or only for retirees. But annuities can be a smart way to hedge market risk and earn guaranteed returns. Gainbridge aims to change the game by offering simplified annuities in a sleek digital experience that replaces fine print and phone tag with clear conditions and a direct low fee model. Learn more at gainbridge.life slash NPR. Bridge is not available in all states. Finally, thanks to AT&T prepaid. AT&T prepaid gives you value and flexibility with monthly pay-as-you-go plans on the same AT&T network without credit checks or annual contracts. This means that you can still stream, swipe, and scroll on your device whenever, wherever. So whether you bring your favorite phone or pick up something new, AT&T prepaid gives you the freedom to find a plan that lets you connect on your terms. To find out more, visit att.
1: The border that divides the U.S. and Mexico is a source of tension and political drama. But when did that history begin?
4: This week on Throughline, 100 years at the border, from a time when it was
2: open and unregulated to the increasing force we see there today.
1: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time
2: to understand the present.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, shifting time. Why time can feel different at 4 a.m. from one decade to the next. And why time can definitely feel different to a physicist. To a physicist, time is a label on the universe. Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at Caltech. And physicists like Sean think about time very differently from you and me. To a physicist, the universe
4: is this thing. It's full of stuff. And it keeps happening over and over again. And this goes back to you know ancient astronomers. The Earth revolves around the sun, and it rotates around its axis 365 times. So the universe is filled with repetitive, cyclic moments. And time is just a label on those different moments.
0: Those labels? one day, one month, one year, make up what Sean and other physicists call the arrow of time, meaning that time travels in one direction. That's why you were younger in the past, why you'll be older in the future, why you remember one and not the other. But here's the problem. That difference between past and future is nowhere to be found in the laws of physics, because in physics, there is no arrow of time. When modern physics came to be with
4: from people like Galileo and Newton up through Einstein, we realized something very gradually, which is that the deep down laws of physics don't distinguish between the past and the future. They treat them completely symmetrically, as if they were just replaceable with each other. Hmm. So as a physicist, there's almost more work to be done in understanding why time works the way it does than as a person on the street, because you have to reconcile the fact that there is a difference between past and future with the fact that that difference doesn't
0: appear anywhere in your fundamental equations. In the laws of physics, there is no intrinsic difference between the past and the future. That is exactly right. Which theoretically means
4: what? So if you think about time going from the far, far, far past, let's say the Big Bang was not the beginning, let's say that there was sort of an infinite amount of time before the Big Bang, and there's an infinite amount of time after the present moment, it's possible there are regions of the universe where their notion of past and future are backwards compared to ours, where they call the past what we call the future and vice versa. That's completely allowed because the underlying laws of physics don't distinguish.
0: Sean Carroll described what this strange fact of physics might mean for our everyday idea of time and our place in the universe from the TED stage.
4: The universe is really big. We live in a galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. There are about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There are approximately 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. The 100 billion is the only number you need to know. The age of the universe between now and the Big Bang is 100 billion in dog years. <laughs> which tells you something about our place in the universe. But we would also like to understand it. As a cosmologist, I wanna ask, why is the universe like this? One big clue we have is that the universe is changing with time. If you looked at one of these galaxies and measured its velocity, it would be moving away from you. And if you look at a galaxy even further away, it would be moving away faster. So we say the universe is expanding. What that means, of course, is that in the past, things were closer together. In the past, the universe was more dense, and it was also hotter. If you squeeze things together, the temperature goes up. That kind of makes sense to us. The thing that doesn't make sense to us as much is that the universe at early times near the Big Bang was also very, very smooth. At early times, those hundred billion galaxies were squeezed closer together, and you have to imagine doing that squeezing without any imperfections, without any little spots where there were a few more atoms than somewhere else, because if there had been, they would have collapsed under the gravitational pull into a huge black hole. Keeping the universe very, very smooth at early times is not... Easy. It's a delicate arrangement. It's a clue that the early universe is not chosen randomly. There was something that made it that way. We would like to know what.
0: Which brings us back to time. Physicists use a special term to describe that early state of the universe when everything was delicately arranged. It's called low entropy. And entropy basically means disorder. So low entropy is a state of order where everything is organized.
4: Well, the thing that about order versus disorder is there are many more ways to be disorderly than to be orderly. Right. That's why if you sort of clean your room, it's not surprising that it gets messier over time. There's more ways
0: to be messy than clean. You can actually look that one up in any physics book. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy, disorder, it's always increasing, and whether you realize it or not, this law plays out all around you in everyday moments.
4: Like breaking an egg, mixing cream into coffee, or diving into a swimming pool and getting a big splash. But you make a movie of that and play it backwards, you instantly know that something's going on where entropy's
0: going down, and that's weird. Okay, so what's the connection between entropy and this idea of the, of the arrow of time, like of, of time having a direction? Well, that's a great question because time would exist with or without entropy, just like
4: space exists, even though there's no arrow of space. If you're out there in your spacesuit, there's no difference between up and down, left you and right. You
0: have no idea what. Right, it's all the same.
4: But there's still space. No one says, oh, space doesn't exist just because there's no direction to it. So entropy gives time a direction, but time exists whether or not there's entropy. And in our universe, at one end of time, the entropy was low, and we call that the past. In the other end of time, the entropy is high, and we call that the future. The part that we don't understand is why the early universe had a low entropy. That's a real puzzle that we're still struggling with today.
0: Uh, If... There was low entropy at the beginning. If there was order, could it suggest that there was something that intended it to be that way?
4: It could be. If you ask a question like that, the answer is yeah, it could Mm, be. There's many things that are possible. Uh, That's certainly uh, something that people have thought about. Uh, There's something called the teleological argument or the argument from design for the existence of a supernatural creator that says that, you know, Features of our universe, if they were very different, wouldn't have allowed for us human beings to exist. But the early universe, interestingly, the problem is not just it was quite orderly, but it was really way more orderly than it needed to be for us to be here. If you really want to make this argument that the universe is set up to allow for the existence of life or humanity or something like that, the early universe is overkill. So it seems that whatever the explanation is for why the early universe has the features it does, that's not a really good one. We, we need something to explain why it is so exquisitely low entropy, so many particles in such a very, very specific state. And as physicists, we have theories. You know, we don't know which one is right. It's early times as far as this big question kind of thinking goes. But it's not hard to imagine that we'll get a good physics explanation rather than reaching for something beyond the physical
0: world. And if physicists come up with that explanation, they might also be able to answer all kinds of questions about the arrow of time.
4: Questions like, is time continuous or discrete? Is there a shortest possible interval of time? Or is time completely smooth? Is time something that everyone would agree is an absolutely crucial part of our best description of the universe? Or is time something that emerges as an approximation if we look at the universe in a right way?
0: OK. To most of us, do those questions sound insane? Yes.
4: But these are all questions that a physicist wants to know the answer to.
0: But how to answer those questions is a problem that is only getting more complicated. The reason the problem has gotten worse rather than better is because
4: in 1998, we learned something crucial about the universe that we didn't know before. We learned that it's accelerating. The universe is not only expanding, if you look at that galaxy, it's moving away. If you come back a billion years later and look at it again, it will be moving away faster. Individual galaxies are speeding away from us faster and faster, so we say the universe is accelerating. Unlike the low entropy of the early universe, even though we don't know the answer for this, we at least have a good theory that can explain it, if that theory is right, and that's the theory of dark energy. It's just the idea that empty space itself has energy. In every little cubic centimeter of space, whether or not there's stuff, whether or not there's particles, matter, radiation, or whatever, there is still energy even in the space itself. And this energy, according to Einstein, exerts a push on the universe. It is a perpetual impulse that pushes galaxies apart from each other. Because dark energy, unlike matter or radiation, does not dilute away as the universe expands. The amount of energy in each cubic centimeter remains the same even as the universe gets bigger and bigger. This has crucial implications for what the universe is going to do in the future. For one thing, the universe will expand forever. Back when I was your age, we didn't know what the universe was gonna do. We thought, some people thought that the universe would recollapse in the future. Einstein was fond of this idea. But if there's dark energy and the dark energy does not go away, the universe is just gonna keep expanding forever and ever and ever. 14 billion years in the past, 100 billion dog years, but an infinite number of years into the future.
0: So did time exist before the Big Bang? We don't know. Huh.
4: That's an open question. I think we should be very humble about what we don't know. We should be very, you know, uh, happy about what we do know and not hide it. But there you have a question where we just don't know the answer. Isn't
0: that crazy? I mean, it's not crazy that we don't know, but it's crazy that to think about that question, to just imagine. I think it's
4: amazing that we can ask the question. Yeah, A hundred years ago, we didn't even know the universe was expanding. You know, the Big Bang model was put together in the
0: 1920s. So it, before that time... We used to think that space was static and that time was static?
4: Well, we used to think that space was static and that time just flowed from past to future. That's just what it was. There was one thing, you know, if Newton had been correct, then time and space are separate and each absolute in their own rights. When Einstein comes along, he realizes that space and time are connected to each other and also that space-time has a dynamical Nature, that it can change, it can be warped, it can be curved, and we experience that curvature as gravity, so we know it's there. So in your brain, you can imagine scenarios where you're warping space and time into each other so much. That you hop in your rocket ship and you zoom out for a trip and you zip around a black hole and you come back before you left. You actually visit yourself in the past. We can imagine this. That's like telling a story about it. We don't think it's something that actually happens in the real world. But
0: we can see the past in in some ways. Like like you look up at a star four light years away and you're seeing the light from that star as it was four years ago.
4: Yes, but remember, when you're looking at your um, spouse across the table, you're also looking yes. at the past.
0: All the time. Every like little bit. Our, everything we've talked about in this conversation is the past. We cannot go back.
4: It's true. And in fact, if you go into the psychology and neuroscience of it, what you are currently experiencing as the moment now is about 80 milliseconds in the past, because it takes time for your brain to put together all the data that it's receiving. And, and construct a conscious you.
0: It's all slipping through my fingers. <laughs>
4: <laughs> this is one of the interesting features of our universe is that as closely related as time and space are to each other, they're different. And one of the differences is that there's three different directions of space and there's only one of time. So time is something that you experience once and for all. Every moment you get to go through once and you don't get to turn left through yesterday and visit it again.
0: It's like there's always a clock ticking, you know? That's right.
4: You know, this goes back to entropy increasing and the fact that the universe is becoming more and more disorderly over time. Because if the early universe were not in this very special orderly low entropy state, if it were what we would think of as sort of more randomly chosen and high disorder, then nothing would happen. There'd be no ant colonies. There'd be no cells. There'd be no human beings. We would be in what we call equilibrium the universe would be a dead, unchanging, static place. The only, thing, any, only reason anything happens in the universe, the only reason why there is this emergent complexity as time goes on, is because the early universe was really, really, really ordered. And we are sort of the tiny little spin-offs, the epiphenomena of the universe as it becomes more and more disorderly. Life itself, depends on the arrow of time. We would not be able to process information, metabolize, walk and talk, if we lived in thermal equilibrium. So if you imagine a very, very big universe, an infinitely big universe, with randomly bumping into each other particles, there will occasionally be small fluctuations in the lower entropy states, and then they relax back. But there will also be large fluctuations. Occasionally you will make a planet, or a star, or a galaxy, or 100 billion galaxies. So here's two questions for you. Number one, if the universe lasts for 10 to the 10 to the 120 years, why are we born in the first 14 billion years of it, in the warm, comfortable afterglow of the Big Bang? Why aren't we in empty space? (laughs) I don't actually know the answer. I'm going to give you my favorite scenario. Either it's just like that, there is no explanation, this is a brute fact about the universe that you should learn to accept and stop asking questions. Or maybe the Big Bang is not the beginning of the universe. An egg, an unbroken egg, is a low-entropy configuration, and yet when we open our refrigerator, we do not go, ha, how surprising to find this low-entropy configuration in our refrigerator. That's because an egg is not a closed system. It comes out of a chicken. Maybe the universe comes out of a universal chicken. Maybe there is something that naturally, through the growth of the laws of physics, gives rise to universe like ours in low entropy configurations. If that's true, it would happen more than once. We would be part of a much bigger multiverse. That's my favorite scenario. Maybe our universe is just one of those things that happens from time to time. Thank you.
0: Sean Carroll is a professor at Caltech His book about time is called From Eternity to Here. You can find his entire talk at Ted.com.
5: Everything got a time.
0: Everything got a
5: time. Everything got a time.
0: Please tell me the time. Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week about shifting time. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Janae West, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Sharif Youssef. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook. You can email us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.